You'll be happy I, happy I didn't help you to spread the flu this morning, right? Uh, go to Matthew chapter 13 if you have a Bible with you this morning. Maybe you have it electronically or you have a hard copy. If you don't own a Bible, there's free ones in the back this morning. There's Bibles under the seats in front of you if you want to follow along that way, but you'll, you'll also see it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 13. So far, we've been walking through the parables in this second section for the last few weeks, and in, in the this section about three weeks ago, we saw that the parables were represented by these soils. The four types of soils, Jesus said, were the, the four types of heart response to the gospel. As the, the word of God goes out, as the seed is planted, there's a response. And he said, three of them are not going to be so good. A couple of them will look like they're good, but not so great. And then there's one that would be good. That was the parable of the soils. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower. And it talked about the responsibility that you and I have to be out there planting the seed, sowing the seed. We're not responsible for the results, but we have a responsibility to put the seed out there. That's why it was called the parable of the sower. Well, this morning you're going to see a parable of the tares. And Jesus hits the basics and he hits it head on. And he hits it so strongly that I'm afraid that if you grew up in church, it can be a ho-hum and we could treat it lightly because it's one more reminder. So I need to stop with you right now, separate of the prayer we just had with communion, but pray, plead, beg, ask God that he would take this and illuminate our minds and cause us to be transformed as a result of it, perhaps renewed in our zeal for the things of God. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's pray together. God, I know that it is your heart, it is your desire that we would be yielded to your purposes, but so many times we're not. So many times we want to chase after the things that we want to do, and we forget the high calling that you gave us. So, Father, in the midst of accomplishing the things that you've given us to do, the responsibilities that we do have, remind us of this high, high task especially as it relates to our friends who don't know you yet, some who don't even care if they know you. Lord God, that you would use this to illuminate our mind, and we know that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're begging for right now, that you would illuminate, that you would give understanding, and as we turn over some soil here, Father, that you would expose our hearts where we've been resistant to this in the past. God, use this. Use this for the sake of the kingdom. Use it for the sake of Jesus' name because you're worthy of it. You're worthy of all of our effort. I ask for this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. See, the reality is Jesus is coming again. Okay, not as good as last week. The reality is Jesus is coming again. Much better. Well done. And that reality drives everything related to this second section of the parables. In, in this section, he's using the parables to describe the era between his first coming and his second coming. This era that you live in. You live in the era called the church age. Jesus refers to it the time during the mysteries of the kingdom. 
between the first coming and the second coming, and he uses the parables to drive it home. What are the characteristics going to be like during that time frame? What should you expect in 2020? What should be obvious to you? What should you be seeing? And the big picture, as you open up Matthew 13, Jesus has given indisputable evidence that he is who he says he is. He's given so much evidence that he's the Messiah. People don't know what to do with the information, but as a nation, as a whole, Israel has rejected him. The leadership of Israel is saying, no, we don't believe that's who you are. So as a result, he does not establish his kingdom on earth during that period of time. He withdraws it and it is postponed until the second coming. As a result of their rejection, withdrawing it from that generation because they commit the unpardonable sin, he in turn takes the offer and spreads it out to you. You who are not ashamed to lift the cup and lift the bread and say, I belong, I believe, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, I understand this to be true. In turn, he extends the offer on a global scale to all the world. But he begins speaking in mysteries to that group. He begins speaking of the mysteries of the kingdom. I want you to go with me to that component where he described it this way in Matthew 13, 11 on the screen. It's a phrase that he used, the mysteries of the kingdom. He's talking about things that were not previously understood that would happen between his first coming and his second coming, the mysteries of that era of time, this time period that you live in right now called the church age, which extends to the return of Jesus. Uh, Mentally, I'm going to ask you just to step back with me to the first century. Put yourself in this setting. Let's pick it up in chapter 13 and verse 1, and we learn it's a particular day in time. Look with me on the screen. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. That day is a really, really busy day. That day, he's at the seashore. He's already been healing lots of people. He's been casting out demons. He's been giving sight restored to the blind. But even though all these evidences are right in front of the Pharisees, it's that day that they choose to say, what you're doing is the work of Satan. And they attribute the works of God to Satan and they commit the unpardonable sin. They grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, even though they turn their backs on him, Jesus is still immensely popular with the people. And so you see in verse 2, large crowds gathered to him. So he goes down to the beach. And, and the beach is a natural amphitheater because it slopes up away from the water. And people can hear him very cleanly and clearly when he's out on the water sitting in a boat. So just imagine now the people are racing to Jesus. They're elbowing each other, trying to get the best seats. Everybody wants to be close to him. And hush falls over the crowd, and Jesus begins to speak, and we pick it up in verse 24. Just walk through the parable with me, and we'll take it as a big chunk. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Verse 30. 
so significant to what you're about to look at. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles and, burn, and to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. We need to break that down. Step back to verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So just like last week, he's using the image of a field, he's using the image of a farmer, he's using the image of a seed. And we know last week we saw that the good seed are those who believe, those who respond. But do you notice here the emphasis is not on what happens to the good seed? He didn't spend his time there. It's rather on what happens to the bad seed. Remember, he's already explained the four responses to the gospel. The, the three soils and the one soil, and three not so good and one good they understand that part, but in this parable, he's going to explain Satan's strategies during the church age. What's going to happen during this time? Ultimately, what's going to happen to that bad seed? So we understand the good seed falls on the ground, it produces the wheat, the fruit is there, but that's not his emphasis. Go with me to verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now, the phrase, while his men were sleeping, don't read too much into that. It's not talking about the church being asleep at the wheel. That's not what it's referring to here. It's simply in the story. They're asleep, so they're oblivious to what's going on out in the field while they're sleeping. That's not his focus. What his focus is, is the enemy. The enemy shows up, and the enemy begins to do damage. You see one Greek word in your notes this morning, if you looked inside your bulletin already. You see it up on the screen as well, Zyzanian. Zyzanian is the word that's used there for the false grain. It's referred to as darnel. Darnel not only looks like wheat, when the plants are really young, botanically, they're very, very close in their structure. They're nearly impossible to distinguish from one another. Only an expert can classify them until, until the wheat ripens and the head sprouts and the grain comes forth, and then you can tell the difference. But at that point, it's so closely entangled, you can't remove it without damaging the wheat. Now, if you're thinking, who would do that? That's like sick. That's perverted. Well, if you're thinking that way, you're correctly thinking. It is sick. Who would do that? Well, in the ancient world, Sowing tares into someone's field was such a high crime and it was carried out as a revenge tactic that Rome actually had to enact laws against it. Individuals got mad at somebody that they knew they had a relationship with and they got ticked off, the relationship broke, broke apart and they could be found sowing tares into someone's field just to get even with them. Well, Rome actually had to put a, a law in place against that crime Jesus says in verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Do you notice it's not until a long time later, not until they've both grown up side by side, alongside each other, the wheat is at that point bearing grain, and then the tares become evident. Verse 27, the slaves, that's the workers of the field, the field workers they, of the landowner, they came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, 
Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Weeds are pretty common, right? You, you grow a lawn, you grow flowers, you raised a garden, you know. Weeds are like an enemy, right? But they're common among us. We, we understand that weeds are common. They grow up along the good plants. But here, the magnitude of them, there's so many of them in this story that they recognize there's been sabotage done here. Somebody has intentionally done this. And realizing the seriousness of the crime, the workers come to him and say, do you want us to remove them? See, the concern is that the tares will weaken the root system and and take the nutrients from the soil and rob the good plants and going to ruin the harvest. But Watch the response of the landowner in the parable, verse 29. But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Because the experienced landowner knows that more damage is going to be done by pulling up the weeds than by leaving them alone. They're too closely intertwined with each other. So he responds this way in verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn because only at the time of the harvest can the good be separated from the bad and be distinguished that way with any certainty? And in the ancient world, reapers had more knowledge than the field workers. Reapers were professionals that were brought in to harvest a crop. The field workers were not experts. Only the reapers were. They're the only ones who were qualified to separate the tares. And once they're separated, they had to be burned to deal with them. Now, if you've been tracking with this story, remember this as you read it this week in the little devotional guide. At this point, Jesus doesn't explain it. He just gives the parable. He doesn't explain it. It's part of the mysteries of the kingdom. It it makes you think of what you looked at last week when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, figure it out. He stops right there and gives no explanation and just leaves the crowd hanging. Just pause with me for just a moment. Before we jump into his interpretation, he's going to give it in verse 36, but think about what you've heard so far. You've learned about the four types of soil and how the responses will be in the condition of someone's heart. You've learned about your own responsibility and what you're supposed to be doing with this information. And the disciples are taking in the same information. They're hearing all these parables just like you are. But legitimately... The disciples could be left wondering, how in the world could this kingdom, could this movement ever survive if so many reject it? And then we find out that there's actually an enemy working behind the scenes trying to sabotage and he's plotting against us. Remember at this point in time, the followers of Jesus were just a handful, the the true followers. There were big crowds that gathered around him, some who just wanted to hear what he had to say. But there were the legitimate few, the the core that he's got around them. And they know that they're a small group. And officially, the leadership of Israel has already rejected Jesus, not to mention the reality that's lingering, that they've got this empire called Rome that's stacked against them. Logically, they could be thinking, what's going on here? And now they hear there's an enemy working to sabotage this? Are, Are things spinning out of control? Well, before the interpretation, I'm not going to read it to you, but between verses 30 and 36, Matthew reminds us 
what Jesus is doing with these parables? He's doing it because it was prophesied. You can read it yourself, just let your eyes glance down there. He said, these things that Jesus did, he's only speaking in parables, and he's doing it to fulfill the prophecies, which were written hundreds of years earlier, which should be telling you, none of this caught by God by surprise. God wasn't surprised at Israel's rejection. The prophets projected it hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, and they said, there's a point coming when he's going to speak only in parables because of the rejection. So this doesn't catch God by surprise whatsoever. But that means there's far-reaching implications in this. That means the postponing of the kingdom also didn't catch God by surprise. It's part of his plan. It's not a backup plan. Jesus is coming again. And that means it's not because his first coming didn't work out so well, but rather because the second coming was intentional. Why? because he's not willing that any would perish. So he's being patient. He's waiting during the first coming and the second coming because there's something going on in the field here. This will sound like it's coming out of left field, but just hear me on this. You're not here by accident. God wanted you in the kingdom. God planned for you to be part of the kingdom. The rejection by individuals in the world doesn't catch God by surprise. You're here because God planned it. He wants you to join him in eternity one day. He wants the entire global population to join him if they would only receive what Jesus is offering because he's not willing that any would perish. It's really crucial that you take that thought into Jesus' interpretation now. You carry that over into this final section here. Verse 36 Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Do you see what's on their mind here? Just bear down on that phrase that they've chosen. Look with me on the screen at that. Explain to us the parable of the tares. See, although they don't fully understand the parable, this isn't all making sense to them. They know it's about judgment because Jesus is talking about burning things. They understand there's something big going on here. They don't call it the parable of the wheat. They don't call it the parable of the farmer. They don't even call it the parable of the good soil. They call it the parable of the tares. Tell us about that. What is that? See, the disciples' question seems to reflect something that's on their mind, this thought. Why are the tares allowed to coexist with the wheat? Why wouldn't you let us tear that up? This goes to a huge issue in our generation right now. Why does God let evil exist in this world? How many times have you heard that? Why, if he's a good God, does he let evil be here? That's a legitimate question. The short answer is he will purge this planet of evil But at the end of the age, through the final judgment, he's going to do that. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. His delay in bringing about any end to evil is entirely grace-driven. What's he doing during this period of time? He's given time for tares to become wheat. That's what he's working on here. Now, in the parable, if the landowner allows these tares to be pulled up and destroyed, the disciples would get it. Because their mindset is, let's put a sickle to them, man. 
Let's get them out of here. That's, that's their heart here. So they're perplexed about the landowner's reaction because they don't yet understand grace. They don't understand the church age. They've grown up under the law. They've grown up under legalism. They've, they've grown up in Judaism. What's this thing? Tell us about the tares. Why would you do that? Why would you let them coexist? Verse 37 helps us to understand. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And you talk about a theologically pregnant verse. It's like, what? This doesn't feel like the basics. This is the basics. This is the basics of why Jesus did what he did on the cross. In this parable, the good seed represents you. It represents who, those who've heard the word, who believe the word, who obey the word, and there's fruit coming out of your life. Christ followers, it's talking about. But in the same field, and he said the field is the world, in the same field where Christ sows true Christians, Satan's at work. And Satan is sowing counterfeit. Now, the Lord identified explicitly that the field is the world. He says it right there in very specific black and white letters. That means the field is the world. It's not the church. This is a picture of the church in the world, not the world in the church. And I say that very specifically because many people have misinterpreted this passage thinking this is talking about corruption within the church. That's not what it's talking about. The Lord God has placed you, his people, as fruitful believers within the world. In the world, but not of the world. You're in the world. You're not in the world by accident. You're in there because of assignment. God's given you assignment. So verse 37 makes it really plain when he says, the one who sows the good seed, that's the son of man. Well, the disciples knew that. Jesus uses that term of himself all the time. He calls himself the son of man constantly. That's because it's an Old Testament phrase to describe the Messiah. It talks about his humility while he's here on earth. The Son of Man as opposed to the Son of God. Humbling himself. That's a phrase that they're very, very familiar with. So picture what's going on here. Jesus is demonstrating himself sowing the field, which is this entire planet. So he's showing us this on a global scale. He's talking about this is talking about the population of the earth that God is personally involved with relating to all of humanity. So this is the image, a global conflict between the purposes of God and the schemes of Satan. So Jesus emphasizes it in verse 38 by saying, the tares, they're the sons of the evil one. Now, mind you, this mystery, this kingdom mystery, it was completely unknown in Old Testament times. The Old Testament prophesied that when the kingdom came, it would eliminate evil. But they knew nothing of this intervening period of time for 2,000 years now, 2,020. This period of time when there would be coexistence between the good and the evil. They didn't understand this. It was part of the mystery Verse 39, Jesus drives the point home. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So there's an enemy involved here, and he's very stealthy, and he's malicious, and he's got a goal in mind. And Jesus says there's a harvest going on, and, and the harvest is God's judgment that comes at the end of the age, meaning the end of the church age. There's going to be a harvest, and the reapers are the angels, and they're going to execute judgment on non-believers. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to put mentally together all the pieces of what you've just heard, and here, New Hope, is where it gets really, really ugly. It ends hopeful, but it gets ugly first. Verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Picture the story. Just as these field hands want to go out with a sickle and remove the tares, the disciples had that kind of mindset. They're ready to take the sickle to the unbelievers. You only have to go to the illustration of the Samaritan village. Jesus stands outside a Samaritan village because the Samaritans had rejected him in that city. And so the disciples, James and John, they turn to Jesus and they say, they rejected you. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Jesus says, no. You don't know what kind of spirit that you're of. I didn't come to judge them at this point in time. I came to redeem them. Well, in this parable, we've been told that the, the wheat sprang up and it, it bore grain. And alongside it, the tares came up and they became evident also. But the only reason we've been told for the field hands not having the authority to pull out the tares is simply because they might root up the wheat. They might damage the crop. There might be some plants that haven't matured yet. And they might mature late. It's talking about believers who are not yet believers. That perhaps they haven't hit the stage in their life yet. Maybe 50 years of age, 60, 70, 80. I met 90-year-old believers who just came to faith in Christ within a couple years of their death. At 92, there might be some plants that just haven't matured yet. And they could be mistaken for tares just because they don't yet have grain. Or perhaps because the roots are so entangled in the root system, some good plants could be uprooted with the tares. So Jesus says, wait, don't, don't go there. Hear this. This church age that you're part of, this unique era of time, it is about evangelism, not judgment. We're not here as judges. We're not qualified to reliably assess or to judge. And God's saying that himself. Can I back that up with evidence? Absolutely. Time after time, when the church has presumed the right and the authority to bring judgment upon humanity, it has failed miserably and has committed bloodstains upon the church's history here on earth. You only have to step back to the fourth century. And you see Emperor Constantine, he became a follower of Christ, but because he's Caesar over the land, he begins demanding that everyone will become a Christian now. He thinks he can issue an edict and people will turn to Christ. Well, during that period of time, he said, if you don't bow the knee to Jesus, we'll behead you. Well, some people caved in just because of fear for their life, but true Christians would say, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with that fake Christianity. 
And as a result, he killed thousands who would not bow the knee or during the Crusades. During that period of time in the Middle Ages, there was astounding brutality by the church, primarily against Muslims and Jews, saying you must conform or go back to the 1500s during the time of Martin Luther and the Inquisition when the Roman Catholic Church took out incredible brutality against those who would not follow their way of thinking. And during the Inquisition, they strangled people, they burned them at the stake, and many thousands of true believers in Jesus were killed. This age that we live in is not the age of God's judgment. It's not the church's responsibility to be judges, but to be proclaimers. Say amen if you agree with that. You're a proclaimer. You're a witness. You lift up the cup and the bread saying, I believe This is what I know to be true. So I find it really compelling that Jesus says right there, let them alone. That's an important part of the story when he says to his followers, let them alone because no man is capable of distinguishing who is and who isn't. I want you to see how it was stated in 1832. Many of you know that Charles Simeon is one of my favorite old dead theologians and and he said it this way. You'll see his quote on the screen. Many who have false appearances would be left by us as wheat, while many who are inwardly sincere would be plucked up as tares. From regard to these, God commands us to forbear. He, God, reserves to himself the office of judging the hearts of men. Just to drive this point home, while Jesus was here on earth, he didn't lift a finger to those who opposed him. To Judas... All he did was offer him the truth and offered him love. Even to those who nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus didn't bring judgment during that period of time. He's going to in the future. That will be at the second coming. So why would his followers consider themselves justified in taking the role of judge or avenger? Believers are not God's instrument of judgment. We are his instruments of grace. Right, church? We are. We're ornaments of his grace. So toward the unbeliever, we're supposed to have a heart of compassion. The role of this church, the role of the church of Jesus, is to present truth. And in doing that, our purpose is not to judge, but rather to usher people, sons and daughters, into the kingdom of God, that we would live our life in such a way that people would be attracted to the king. So verse 40, it kind of brings it to the close and Jesus says it this way, just as the tares are gathered up, so shall it be at the end of the age. He's making it really clear there's gonna be a separation and it's gonna be ugly. The end of the age is the end of the church age. We don't know what day that is. Could be in the next seven years. We don't know. But in the meantime, we coexist on this planet. We enjoy the same sunny days on a Sunday in February. Can I believe I'm seeing blue sky out there? Like, whoa. We go to the same schools. We go to the same workplace. We live in the same neighborhoods. We coexist. Wheat among tares. 
because believers are supposed to be in the world and not of the world. So our task is not to pull up the faults, but to sow the truth. Jesus finalizes it this way in verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And immediately you've seen there's a turn here. He's not talking about a harvest. He's not talking about a field. He's not talking about grain. He's talking about people. This is transitioned from farming to individuals. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and I find this absolutely fascinating on one level and horrifying on another level. God's going to send forth his angels to collect the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness? That's an absolute match for 2 Thessalonians and many other passages in Scripture. Let me give you this one as an example. We're told it's the angels who will deliver. Look with me on the screen, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. The angels will deliver retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these will pay the penalty. If in the parable the wheat represents you, If in the parable the wheat represents believers who are children of God, then logically the tares are the product of Satan's activity. Satan's at work. He's working against God's purposes. And you see two characteristics that are described there by those individuals that they're stumbling blocks to those who want to believe and they're also those same individuals who commit lawlessness. Well, we get a reality check. That Jesus gave us a reality check in Matthew 16, 27. He said, there's a time when that's coming to an end. Look with me on the screen at this. I will come in the glory of my Father. The Son will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. He will come again and he will recompense. And so he ends this really hard stuff with verse 42. And I read this humbly, church, and I read it with frailty in my own heart. I hope you read this next verse with brokenness. Because what it's describing here is the reality that without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you and I would be in verse 42. Without the truth of what this is stating here, Without the truth of Jesus redeeming you, you'd be in verse 42. Verse 42 says, and we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That'd be true of every one of us were it not for the cross of Jesus. This furnace of fire, he's talking about the excruciating torment of hell. And it's so fearsome that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the weeping? That's sorrow. That's grief. We're talking about emotional agony. What's this other one? the, The gnashing, the grinding of teeth. That's describing physical agony. You put those two components together and you realize we have a misunderstanding of hell in our culture. This particular issue probably irritates me as much as any on our planet when people joke about hell. They, they take it too lightly. They tend to think of Satan as having a throne and there's going to be a party in hell and we're going to continue the party. 
that we're doing here on earth, we're just gonna take it into hell. He couldn't be more wrong. And I partly blame pop culture for this, and I partly blame laziness on the part of humanity and the inability to really look at God's word and say, I'm gonna actually understand this thing. Example for you, Billy Joel wrote a song, and his song characterized what most of pop culture thinks of when they think about hell. It's, it's in the phrases of the song, it says, well, they say there's a heaven, but I say there ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Only the good die young. Remember that song? That's bad theology. Don't get your theology from pop culture. Billy Joel is wrong. Hell has no friendships. It has no companions. There's no comfort. It is unbearably lonely and it is the piercing torment of utter darkness. What do we do in the prison systems in this planet when we want to really punish somebody? We put them in solitary confinement. There, maybe that'll fix you. Where did that come from? They understand what hell is. Eternal separation from God. Eternal solitary confinement. And it does not have wicked pleasures just waiting for people. It is eternity. It's in a flame. And there's no peace of any degree And hell here, this church, it is forever. Scripture says in Revelation, it is ever and ever and ever and ever and ever without any end to it. If you hear a brokenness in my voice, it's that we treat this too lightly. This is serious. It's life and death serious. But as horrible as that reality is, Jesus ends this with such promise and such hope and such beauty. I'm not gonna put verse 43 for you up on the screen because I wanna encourage you to look at your own Bible. If you don't own a Bible, grab a free Bible after the service. Take one with you. Read verse verse 43 because in it Jesus says this, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun. What a wonderful awful, spectacular separation there will be. When Christ returns with his angels, not only will they separate out the wicked, the tares who have not acknowledged Jesus, they're gonna separate out the righteous for eternity in heaven. And your splendor will burst forth as the sun behind a cloud on a summer day when it's partially obscured, but you can't stop the rays from busting out. That's the imagery that Jesus is giving here. That's when the righteous will receive their kingdom at the end of the age. And it's being prepared for you. Matthew 24, 31 says it this way. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's you, you're the elect of God. It's not by surprise that you're here. God wanted you here for that day. And in that day, there will be no evil, no evil thoughts, no evil people, no evil actions because there will be a separation that takes place. This new hope is the eternal kingdom of your heavenly father. And your loved ones in Jesus who are already there, they're just waiting for you. They wanna show you how bright they can shine. 
You can show them how bright you can shine. The righteous of all the ages are going to shine forth. Daniel 12, 3 captured it this way. They will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I could end right there. But if I did, I'd be robbing you of this closing thought. This parable, it goes to the issue of our generation. Why does God allow evil on this planet? If he's such a good God, why is it here? Well, your quick response can be to anyone asking you that. Because he's patient. He's been patient with me. Has he been patient with you, New Hope? He's a good God and he's patient. He will purge this planet of all evil. But it's at the end of the age. It's at the second coming. His delay in bringing about the end is entirely driven by grace. And it's amazing. Somebody should write a song about it. Just saying. It's astounding. His delay in bringing about the end is entirely driven by grace because he's given opportunity for tares to become wheat. Follow that thought through with a verse I think you've probably heard much of your life if you grew up in church. Look with me at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for tares to become wheat. And immediately you might be thinking, that can't happen in the physical world, you're right. Tares can't become wheat in the natural world, but they can in the world of our God. God is in the business of making tares into wheat. I stand before hundreds of tares formerly who are now wheat. You watching online? This is for you too. We have reason to celebrate when we lift the cup, when we lift the bread. He's transformed us. That type of change can't take place in the natural world, but it can in the kingdom of grace. So this parable, it preaches and it warns, and it warns greatly that the ultimate test is not what you appear to be, but what you really are. It's not what you look like. It's what you really are inside. Any person who's hearing my voice right now who's uncertain about their relationship with God should be asking yourself right now, am, am I the wheat that Jesus was talking about here? Or am I just a tear that looks like wheat? Am I just fooling myself? If you examine yourself and you come to the conclusion that you do not belong to God yet, I'm here to tell you this morning, you can. From one former tear to another, you can become a child of God. That's God's specialty. It's what he does. But if you're a son or daughter of the king, you lifted the cup, you lifted the bread this morning, you know that you know that you know. Hear what the king says to you this morning. Your attitude towards this world that you're living in 
It's got to be an attitude of mercy, an attitude of compassion, not judging. Jesus called you to witness and to proclaim and live your life in such a way that people are attracted to Jesus, not repelled. Because you're not here to condemn. You're not here to judge. So the most merciful thing you can do, live your life in such a way before those people that you work with and you live with, you go to school with, that they want to know more about what's inside you. So I would say attend this. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Would you agree? Even so. Let's pray together, church. Father, we fail to comprehend the power and the magnitude of what you've just done here because some of it may not produce until 10 years from now or a year from now or perhaps even in this moment. I don't know what you're going to do with it, God, but as we cast our bread up on the water, we ask that you would take it and you would expand the kingdom. Father, bless the work of this church as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this tri-county area, for people who attend here geographically and for people who watch online by the hundreds every week, God, I ask that you would use this to magnify yourself. Bring many into the kingdom. Father, for those with questions right now, I pray that you would be especially close to them that the power of your Holy Spirit would enshadow them and they will not let this moment escape without dealing with the issues that we've talked about. Father, I pray for that. In the magnificent name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. If you want to engage in conversation, I'm over here. I'd be happy to talk with you today. Have a great week.